convinced him that you should be treated medically in a hospital. I believe that'd be good for you. But the authorities want to put you with the general population. Prison's a prison. Ah, yes. But the difference is, down there, you're beaten alive. You're responsible for a lot of them being in prison here, Walter. Tell me what you see. A pretty butterfly. Well, now, what do you see here? Imagine it's late at night and you're walking home from the metro station nearest your abode, in the heart of the city. You're tired and want to get home as quickly as possible, so you cut through a poorly lit back alley. Up ahead, a figure steps out from the shadows and starts walking toward you. You slow up almost to a stop and squint your eyes to get a sharper view. Tall and bulky with ratty shoulder-length hair and wearing sunglasses at 1am, he seems to have come straight out of a cheesy 70s crime action movie. You reach into your front pocket and pull out your keys, weaponizing them instantly by getting the perfect grip on them. Twenty steps away now. Fifteen. You slow up even more, ten steps away. You're ready for chaos and then possibly hell. Five steps. Three. He sidesteps and puts an extra half meter between the both of you as he passes. You stop, putting all your weight on your forward foot, pivoting slowly, tracking him with your gaze. He never slows and never looks back. Seconds later, he disappears around the corner. Maybe such excitement isn't a regular feature of your existence, or maybe situations like this are par for the course for you. Either way, what happened here? Clearly an object in the world was able to make a profound enough change within you that you were almost instantly mobilized for war. That object, of course, was another human being. Certainly your reaction would have been less dramatic had the man been wearing, say, a tuxedo, or had he been a woman in business attire. You are the experiencer, the perceiver. To say you are one of many experiencers is to say that you perceive the collective presence of others in the world and accept that they exist as you do. However, what you accept as truth based on your perceptions doesn't change the fact that the only perceptions you are truly aware of are your own. Even if you believe that the world and the living beings you perceive all around you do truly exist, you must accept that you are the prime experiencer. Of this there can be no doubt. Constrained by the limits of our own perceptive abilities, we must necessarily conclude that truth and by extension, existential meaning, is completely subjective. Our business today, though, isn't with tackling the impossible subject of life's meaning, but with the origin of any kind of meaning at all within an individual, which starts with experience, with appearances, representations in our mind of objects we take to be external to us, meaning objects in the world. Let me point out here that it'll be helpful if you pay careful attention to how the words meaning and knowledge fit into the context of our present discussion. Recall from the last episode what Kant said about knowledge and experience. Quote, Though all our knowledge begins with experience, it by no means follows that all arises out of experience. 
For, on the contrary, it is quite possible that our empirical knowledge is a compound of that which we receive through impressions, and that which the faculty of cognition supplies from itself, sensuous impressions giving merely the occasion. Unquote. All knowledge begins with experience, and our ability to perceive makes experience possible. David Hume, in A Treatise of Human Nature, talked about deriving knowledge from experience, and pointed out that what we can know is limited by our perceptive abilities. In Critique of Pure Reason, Immanuel Kant explored in more detail the nature of our perceptive apparatus, and how the ways in which we are affected by objects through the senses cause us to think we know something about those objects, as they are in themselves. He writes, quote, Therefore, to speak accurately, no ideality whatever belongs to these, although they agree in this respect with the representation of space, that they belong merely to the subjective nature of the mode of sensuous perception, such a mode, for example, as that of sight, of hearing, and of feeling, by means of the sensations of color, sound, and heat, but which, because they are only sensations and not intuitions, do not of themselves give us the cognition of any object, least of all an a priori cognition. My purpose in the above remark is merely this, to guard anyone against illustrating the asserted ideality of space by examples quite insufficient, for example, by color, taste, etc., for these must be contemplated not as properties of things, but only as changes in the subject, changes which may be different in different men. For in such a case, that which is originally a mere phenomenon, a rose, for example, is taken by the empirical understanding for a thing in itself, though to every different eye in respect of its color it may appear different. On the contrary, the transcendental conception of phenomena in space is a critical admonition that, in general, nothing which is intuited in space is a thing in itself, and that space is not a form which belongs as a property to things, but that objects are quite unknown to us in themselves, and what we call outward objects are nothing else but mere representations of our sensibility, whose form is space, but whose real correlate, the thing in itself, is not known by means of these representations, nor ever can be, but respecting which, in experience, no inquiry is ever made. Unquote. In this passage, Kant refers to sensibility and intuitions. He also mentions cognitions and phenomena. If we apply our own definitions of these terms, we'll get confused quickly. So we need to know what Kant means when he uses these terms, which isn't clear from the outset when one dives into critique of pure reason. Let's start with cognition. About halfway through the critique, one comes across a passage where Kant defines cognition in a single phrase. He states, quote, An objective perception is a cognition, unquote. Now, if you've read the first half of the critique, you can pull some meaning out of this, but coming to it cold leaves one scratching one's head. What is an objective perception? Kant says, a perception is, quote, presentation with consciousness, unquote. Now, we know that a representation is a mental representation of an object, say, an object we take to be external to us. In some English translations of the critique, the definition of objective perception is given as, quote, representation with consciousness, unquote. So we'll just take presentation to mean representation here. Yes, this is tedious, but bear with me. Once it all gets sorted out, it'll lead to a deep intuitive understanding of the mind. Okay, so we have a cognition as an objective perception, meaning we have a cognition as a conscious presentation of an object, meaning a presentation occurring at the level of awareness. Now, if you're wondering if there are presentations without consciousness, you might feel a little clearer on the matter if you consider a time when you've reacted to something external to you before you were completely aware of the need to react at all. If you need an example, try to sit perfectly still and not move and have someone hurl a baseball at your face. 
Try as hard as you might to take one for the sake of extending human knowledge, you'll likely put your hand up to block the incoming projectile, and you'll probably turn your face away while twisting your body, leaning to the side. Such a reaction, which seems to take place automatically, meaning below the level of awareness, would have had to have been initiated by some subconscious mental process leading to a judgment about the danger you were in, and in that mental processing for a judgment to be made at all, a judgment made below the level of awareness, the situation you were in would have had to have been represented below the level of awareness, meaning you would have had to have had a representation without consciousness. Okay, so now hopefully we're clear on what a cognition according to Kant is. Let's move on to sensibility and intuitions. From the introduction in Transcendental Aesthetic and Critique of Pure Reason, Kant writes, quote, In whatsoever mode or by whatsoever means our knowledge may relate to objects, it is at least quite clear that the only manner in which it immediately relates to them is by means of an intuition. To this, as the indispensable groundwork, all thought points. But an intuition can take place only insofar as the object is given to us. This, again, is only possible, to man at least, on condition that the object affect the mind in a certain manner. The capacity for receiving representations, receptivity, through the mode in which we are affected by objects, is called sensibility. By means of sensibility, therefore, objects are given to us, and it alone furnishes us with intuitions. By the understanding, they are thought, and from it arise conceptions. But a thought must directly or indirectly, by means of certain signs, relate ultimately to intuitions, consequently with us to sensibility, because in no other way can an object be given to us. Unquote. In the comfort of your own home, close your eyes and move your eyes in their sockets, left to right, up and down. Now open them. The representation of the thing is immediate. Thoughts of last night's episode of your favorite weekly serial drama, a sense of curiosity about what's on the 24-hour news channel right now, and an urge to pick up the remote control. They hit you seemingly all at once. What didn't come through immediately with the presentation was an articulation of the shape and color of the thing, rectangular, deep, and black. Nothing popped into your mind about the inner workings of it. Maybe nothing could have popped into your mind concerning that. All around you, what you see, hear, smell, touch, and taste, it moves you. In the chaos of sensory overload, you find yourself simultaneously attracted to various aspects of it and repelled by others. In no way are you ever indifferent to it, though. Light rays strike your retinas and electrical signals travel down the optic nerve on their way inward. Something out there is affecting you. You sense it and your mind is directed toward it. The representation of it comes clear and the sense impression creates an internal impression. You're simultaneously aware of the thing and how you stand in relation to it. In short, you are aware of meaning. Of course, this meaning is subjective meaning. In every conscious moment, there is input, information brought in from the outside world through the senses. A representation put together in your mind as a result of the combination of incoming sense data, according to a rule, a synthesis if you like, is what Hume called an impression of sensation. We'll call it a sense impression. How it affects you, meaning the change it causes within you, in terms of mental states, is presented as what Hume called an impression of reflection. We'll call this an internal impression. This internal impression is a general attitude, a state of the mind significantly determined by a set of subjective judgments about how the individual stands in relation to the object currently affecting him through the senses, a judgment made according to how he stands in relation to the concept of the object, meaning how he stands in relation to the most prominent features of all of his individual experience with objects subsumed under that concept. 
Impressions affect mind-directedness. The stronger the impression, the more intensely the mind works in making judgments about that which caused the impression. A sense impression orients the mind toward that which affected the senses, and by extension the subject, and puts her into a higher state of readiness to engage with the outside world. And if the impression of reflection caused by the sense impression is intense enough, meaning some intensity threshold has been reached, judgments leading to action occur, such action being a reaction on the part of the subject to the external stimuli which affected him. This mind-directedness toward the object of cognition is what Kant calls intuition. Let me repeat a part of the most recent passage from the critique. Quote, In whatsoever mode or by whatsoever means our knowledge may relate to objects, it is at least quite clear that the only manner in which it immediately relates to them is by means of an intuition. Unquote. In the same passage, Kant writes, quote, The capacity for receiving representations, receptivity, through the mode in which we are affected by objects, is called sensibility. By means of sensibility, therefore, objects are given to us, and it alone furnishes us with intuitions. Unquote. For an external object to be represented in us, we need working sense organs and a way to convert electrical signals produced when the sense organs are affected by an object in whatever way they can be affected, light striking the retina, for example, we need a way to convert these signals into representations of the object. Without having a detailed knowledge of this process, we can just call the capacity for doing so sensibility. The effect an object has on this capacity is a sensation. Kant says, quote, By means of sensibility, objects are given to us, and sensibility alone gives us intuitions, unquote. Now we can think of an intuition as mind-directedness toward an object that affects us, it's what connects a cognition, our conscious presentations of an object, to the object itself. In the case where we sense an object external to us and we receive a representation, our intuition is what focuses the mind on the object of that representation. Intuition that refers to an object of sensation, Kant calls empirical intuition. An object of empirical intuition is called appearance, or, as stated earlier, phenomenon. So we're finally at the point where objects in the world, external to us, make their appearances. Whether we recognize them or not is another matter, and we'll deal with that matter in the next episode. Until then, I hope you'll take some time to do a little reading on Kant's Transcendental Aesthetic. The Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is an excellent online resource. The web address is plato.stanford.edu. That's p-l-a-t-o dot s-t-a-n-f-o-r-d dot e-d-u. If you have time, I recommend going straight to the source. Project Gutenberg has free downloadable copies of Critique of Pure Reason and other great classic works, philosophical and otherwise. If you're willing to spend a little money on a scholar's edition of the critique, the English translation by Werner S. Pluhar is my recommendation. Anyway, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.